so we're back. We're so back. It's been a while since our last episode, but we needed a little summer break. And here we are recording at the beginning of August with mm-hmm. our episode that we think you guys will really enjoy because it's a little departure from the intense meditation on AI that we did last time. So without further ado, you are listening to episode three of The Naval Gaze. The Naval Gaze. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Naval and then I was like, the Naval Gaze. The Naval Gaze. The Naval Gaze. You're listening to episode three of The Naval Gaze. You're so good at that. And I'm your host. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Arouge. I'm the second of three hosts. I'm Gabe. I'm the third host of the Naval Gates. You're um, our third. You're our third? <laughs> yeah. They were looking for me. <laughs> they found me. I'm Molly. Yeah, we actually formed the podcast through a series of interconnected Lex posts. Yes. We were all seeking to be the third in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found each other. And we found each other. Yeah. And it was actually, this, this podcast is not sponsored by Lex, but if they would like to sponsor us... Just shoot us an email. Nope, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is an anti-Lex podcast. It's like the driest app ever, actually. I feel like yeah. anytime I've gone on it, it's like, there's one lesbian, <laughs> like, one very lonely lesbian posting. My wants to have a picnic and listen to Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. My favorite, it reminds me of like one of my favorite TikToks where it's like, clean girl aesthetic this, dark academia that, bro, where are the sluts? <laughs> I've been wondering that a lot lately, like... Where are the sluts? Where are the sluts? On an anthropological, socio-geographical level, where are the sluts distributed? And why aren't they in our inbox? I think, in a way, it's because they're in the room with us right now. Oh my god. (laughs) So Rouge is coming out. (laughs) It's a slut. Period. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I think um, I want to encourage more of the gazers to email us. We did get some excellent gazer feedback on our little poll for this episode, which we will be sharing later on. But we always love hearing from you. And a good narrative email that we can read aloud and, and chat a bit um, containing your thoughts within the email is always great. Yeah. So basically, feel free to just info dump, trauma dump, <laughs> take a dump in our inbox. Please take a dump. We in would our love inbox. to read it. Like, I just, I don't want anyone to think that we'll be able to have, like, a back and forth. Um, but you can email us at thenavelgaze at gmail.com, I believe. Uh, thenavelgazepod at gmail.com. Mm. Thenavelgazepod at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram account, which is kind of where we source polls from our, our meager little following. Um, we, we post memes. We post like our memes, memes and our condodges. Yeah. What's the Instagram again? The Instagram is thenavelgaze. Okay, so yeah. the Instagram is at thenavelgaze. Perfect. Um, just because we couldn't make it super easy and coherent. We're embodying today's topic, which is kind of in defense of and all about crazy bitches. It's true. It's true. You know, I personally would love to hear about a time... That you guys were acting so normal and not crazy at all. Oh, I don't know if I can share any of that. I'm... Oh, okay. Well, tell me a crazy story then. <laughs> I, well, for one, I've never been normal. Um, what is it? That hot topic thing that's like normal? It's just a setting on a dryer. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I actually live my life yeah. by that mantra. It can be normal, casual, or heavy duty, or delicate. Or de- I, And I'm delicate, yes. personally. But... 
to prepare for this episode, I had an episode of my own. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just went fucking crazy for two days to really get into the right headspace for this episode. And I think what I've learned from that experience is that emotional volatility makes you really tired and sleepy, but it can be extremely generative. And I'm excited to bring that energy with me here today. But yeah, I'm always crazy. So I mean, it's hard to distinguish. Right. right? I mean, that's the nature of being crazy. It's like even when you're self-aware, you're you're like being crazy about being self-aware. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like it's like salsa. Yeah. There's like mild, moderate, hot. And I, a time that I was being hot crazy is I was doing a meditation, trying to access some deep part of my psyche that was clearly like off limits. Like there was yellow warning tape up and I decided to, um, trespass. And when I emerged from the meditation, I was extremely paranoid and I developed like a temporary scopophobia, which is like a fear that you're being looked at or being watched. And I was, I remember actually I was on Pinterest because I was like, Pinterest will calm me down. <laughs> it's going to make me feel so normal. And I started like seeing all these pictures of animals. And I was like, oh my God, these fucking animals are watching me through the screen. And I came across this one particular photo that I think I showed the both of you. And we'll, we'll post it on Instagram of yeah. this freakish cat. I mean, like actually so evil in that moment. And he has these really big eyes and he was staring at me with this grim <laughs> smile. I was so terrified of him, like legitimately so scared. I was trembling. I had to like, I think I sent a text or a group chat I was in and I was like, people like, please send me things that are cute and comforting because I'm really anxious. And then, of course, people started sending, like, animal photos, and I was so (laughs) upset. Um, But now I keep that photo on my phone, and I look at it to sometimes slightly trigger myself, but also to remember, like, just how crazy I felt in that moment. Yeah, real. Good to have a memento. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I don't know. Um, No, I do know. This is a good story for this time of year because it's moving season. Mm. Um, But there was a time in my life where I was sort of between places and um, had to break a lease. And so I was driving around in my old Jeep with an entire... I know I missed the Jeep. I was driving around in the Jeep uh, with a big old Ikea dresser in the back of the car. And I didn't have anywhere to put it. So I was just driving around with this dresser. And when I'd turn a corner, the drawers would come out and slam back in and... It was really nerve-wracking, but, um, you know, I was still living my life, so I was going up to, like, visit a friend, chill. I was tearing through the parking lot, and I see this woman looking at me, gesturing and mouthing, slow down, slow down. And um, I didn't think she had any right to be telling me that. And you were like, you crazy bitch. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, this bitch is being crazy, not referring to myself. So I parked the car, got out, and yelled, are you the police? Oh! Get her ass. Wait, you literally parked? (laughs) (laughs) That's so confrontational. Um, I was was so mad about so many things, but I directed it all at her. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now I'm, like, thinking about, like, oh, I'm I'm putting this on a recording. But I yelled, (laughs) are you the police? And she said, no. And I said, then mind your own business. (laughs) And I walked away. I walked away. But I'm happy to report that I moved again this month. I landed well. I landed safely. I got rid of my dresser. And um, growth. Growth is it can be measured. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. 
around this time of year, I become nostalgic because I think of when you moved in. Oh, yeah. And actually, we were being really crazy when you moved in. Yeah. Because it was during COVID. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And you had a COVID scare right when you moved in. And you were just, like, full. You were so contrite. Like, you were, you walked in and you were ready to self-flagellate. I was being Catholic about it. You were being being so so Catholic. Catholic. You had your mask on and you were like, I'm going to stay in my room because I don't want to, you know. (gasps) But I feel like I copped out with my crazy, I feel like I should give you guys a a true crazy story. Okay. You, that's so crazy of you to not say it. Go on, tell us. But then at the same time, I think we were talking about this earlier, where like part of the craziness is like, what do I hold on to? Like, when I'm being crazy, I'm like, I'm just going to forget this ever happened. Mm. My favorite crazy thing to do, and I do this honestly so regularly, that I am a little embarrassed about it, but not so embarrassed that I won't say it on the pod, is I love to send an insane, risky text to someone and then just delete the conversation. The whole conversation? Yeah. Like, yes. your whole text history? Uh, with that person, Yes. That is weird. That's like very <laughs> risky because it's like you're just removing the context. Yeah, yeah. So what I do is I'll send it and then I delete the conversation so that I don't feel tempted to go back and check if they've seen it or whatever. And then if they reply, they might reply, they might not. That That is like going out on a tightrope, pulling a blindfold out of your pocket, putting it on, <laughs> and then taking another few steps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm crazy. Like, we established And then smoking that. weed. And, then, <laughs> and you know what? I've done this this week. I did it last week. I'll probably do it again next week. It's a weekly affair. Yeah, yeah. But that is the kind of crazy that I consistently... Like, I have to have that. Okay. That passes muster. Yeah, that passes muster? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're definitely crazy. <laughs> I, I wanted to be crazy enough to be on this episode. You, okay. have, to, you have to reach the threshold. Otherwise... <laughs> Like, this is an expert panel. Oh, well, okay, guys. Given that we're all fucking crazy, mm-hmm. what did we want to talk about today, like, in, rela- in relation to our own craziness? How did this come about? I've been fascinated by crazy women. I, I grew up around crazy women. I see them on the street. I hear about them on the radio. I encounter them in media. And so I think it was kind of natural that we would eventually need to have a seminar on crazy women. And they're all the rage. I mean, they're very hot. They're very in right now. <laughs> they are the moment. If you trace it back, because you know we love to trace it back, there have been crazy women for as long as there have been no. women and crazy people. Our ancestors. Really? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in the caves, there were cave women, and yeah. they were crazy. They would take the hunting and gathering spoils of the day and be like, you don't fucking listen to me, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't love me, and then they would throw it out, and the dinosaurs would come by and gobble it up. <laughs> the first beautiful princess, I mean, it's hard to really figure out like when that happened. I think we, we're looking at it from all the beautiful princesses around us. Like Gabe said, whether they're in our real life, people that we know, people that we love, people that we hate, 
Or on the internet. Or people on the internet. Beautiful space of real and also not real. The three of us have definitely noticed a certain attachment to the concept of the crazy girl and especially the quote-unquote BPD girly, which is sort of how we anchored our discussion in all of our preliminary discussions. And so I don't know, Gabe, or how would you describe the concept of the BPD girly as you encounter it in today's culture? I think Gabe and I have talked about this in relation to quote-unquote schizo posting on Twitter and how there are these memes that are usually pictures of movie stills or anime screenshots or whatever. And then on top of that, they'll have some like short little funny statement in the font that's from those whisper posts. And I started to see like this massive influx. Like there's obviously those ones that are like Patrick Bateman, I'm so crazy, like I'm such a lone wolf, subgenre. But then I saw like this parallel grouping that was all girls posting about I'm so crazy, I'm so unstable, like I have beautiful princess disorder. And then some of them would just be like outright descriptions of someone having an episode of insecure, um, almost a hysteric kind of situation of like fear of abandonment and whatnot. And I argue later on that it will be kind of like a fetishized thing of like, what does it mean to be a girl with beautiful princess disorder? And it engenders all this stuff about the BPDGF and whatnot. Yeah, to me, in the same way that schizo posting and schizo hyphen, it doesn't have as solid of a connection to the actual experience of schizophrenia so much as it has a connection to the perceived experience of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I think the increased relatability and interest in BPD has created a space for women who feel crazy or have been called crazy. Essentially, BPD, in my mind, the BPD girly is a catch-all for fem cells, weirdos, hot girls, bitches, hysterics, and sometimes girls with BPD. And we'll kind of get into how it's really fraught for those who, you know, consider themselves to actually have the disorder because mm -hmm. of this relationship between pathology and aesthetic. Yeah, I'd also like to add, at the same time that there are people who are self-diagnosing, there are people who are being diagnosed and also rejecting that diagnosis or BPD as a label. Yeah, the line between having the symptoms of something and relating to it are very thin. When we were talking about crazy bitches as a concept originally, one thing that we were super interested in was what makes women adopt this label in its myriad forms and also what makes it such a point of fascination in media and in culture. Because when we trace it across time, you can see so many versions of crazy, cool, different girl, but you can also see so many different versions of women adopting this label and being like, yes, I am crazy, even though externally you would think oh, why would I want other people to think I'm crazy? Especially if you personally or know someone who's struggled with mental illness, that's one of those difficulties where being perceived as crazy is something that that person is usually trying to avoid because it complicates yeah. their life. So why are people doing this thing that seems to put them at a disadvantage? I think that we're interested in tracking it as it has been used as a weapon against women and also as a label that women use to find some sense of empowerment or belonging. This ties into this idea that we discussed kind of off the mic a couple of weeks ago about the idea of refanging yourself. Because there's this idea of like defanging mm -hmm. or neutering something or making it palatable. But a lot of female and feminine aesthetic movements are all about refanging or making yourself volatile. It's kind of a pendulum where when you find that something is interrupting your ability to move through the world smoothly, 
you avoid it. But then once you enter into too safe of an aesthetic space, you want to make it volatile again. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's perfectly put because what we're looking at really broadly is femininity and power and how those two things are related. And I think in the modern moment, um, and we get into this whole dynamic of in literature, women are angels or monsters. And then also, like you say, like there's a palatable way to be a powerful woman and then there's an unpalatable way to be a powerful woman. And sometimes a crazy quote-unquote BPD girly, which is what we're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about, is in opposition to and perhaps more powerful than being a girl boss, right? Because one of these things exists within a capitalist normative social culture um, and feeds into it and perpetuates it. And then the other thing is innately disruptive. But nevertheless, we all have a complicated relationship to this, like we talk about later, because a big thing that we're interested in is why would you adopt parts of an illness or the entire picture of an illness and make it part of your identity when we know at the same time that there are people who are clinically diagnosed with borderline personality disorder who hate having borderline personality disorder. They think it ruins their life. They think it is something that they would be much happier living without. And those are all kind of the threads that we're going to follow throughout the episode today. We're going to have to start with maybe our favorite part of stuff, which is cultural analysis. So not everyone, I think, is familiar with the BPD girly. Part of what makes this episode difficult at first is like you have to be so on Twitter and on TikTok <laughs> to even know what the hell we're talking about. Let's paint a picture of what we've seen on Twitter and TikTok um, so that everyone has an idea of what a BPD girly is. I immediately think of, we have an example here. TikToks usually of a woman doing something quotidian or she's looking at the camera and the text is filling the damn screen. Mm -hmm. Like I see so many mm -hmm. of these and it can really be about anything, but there's this culture of oversharing that's interesting. So sometimes, like you mentioned earlier, it's a recollection of a particular episode or it's even an externalization of a disorganized thought or a violent thought. The wall of text is so real. There are some examples that I might post in the carousel later, but I screenshotted one and it's like, I think a woman at her job and she's just filling the screen with me explaining to somebody that when you have BPD and go through a breakup, it's not like your normal breakup, but one of the most devastating and traumatizing times because instead of losing an ex, you lost your favorite person who you literally revolved all your emotions around. So it's more like grieving somebody that died and is still living, but you can't move on because your entire personality mirrored theirs and now you don't know who you are without them. And then there's another one, which there's this whole phenomenon of cute anime girls that are these fantasy BPD girlfriends for people, but then also, quote unquote, BPD girls, people self-identifying with that label, will make memes for themselves where they kind of project their own image onto this random anime character. And there's one that's like, I'm not like other girls. I'm delusional and suffer from extreme paranoia. Every thought I have is intrusive and every day I live feeling unfulfilled. I have no confidence in expressing and then it like cuts off at the bottom but it keeps going in mm. this rant of extremely negative, toxic, and depressive emotions that I don't deny that a ton of people feel whether they have borderline personality disorder or not. But I'm so intrigued by the urge to go online and share this. And to be honest, these are kind of tame. Um, yes. The examples that we pulled. There's stuff out there of like people having sobbing breakdowns, people sharing extremely traumatizing things about themselves. 
And, you know, we obviously didn't include those because yeah. we like you guys. <laughs> yeah. And also respect to the people who are creating those. Absolutely. You know, I think something that these two examples demonstrate is that the image itself cannot contain the feeling or the experience. It, it, yeah, in that one instance, the text is literally cut off. Mm -hmm. But that is a recurring feeling that a lot of these girls are expressing is that they fundamentally cannot ever be understood even though they're trying so desperately and like turning themselves inside out and completely reforming and confessing their identities constantly. I do think that that feeling of being incapable of being understood has contributed to so much despair, but I think on the other hand, it also has been made into a desirable quality, maybe mm -hmm. fetishized perhaps. Like, Mysteriousness. Right, like this is a funny example. I think it's kind of an early example of stuff in internet culture perpetuating this idea but it's the harley quinn and joker meme coffee yeah. pasta she was fearless and crazier than him she was his queen and god help anyone who dared to disrespect his queen god Absolutely. so real though so real <laughs> right then, you know on one level it's hard to trace the genealogy of this right mm -hmm. with schizo posting it's like guys that are like i'm just like patrick bateman i'm the lone wolf i'm the sigma like whatever and that is where that inner feeling is being projected into memes and then people are sharing it and being like, ha me too, whether it's ironic or genuine. And in the same way, you have these memes for BPD girls where it's like, I can conceivably believe that a BPD girl wrote this, right? And then it's being shared by people who may share some of those qualities, may not. And it has that maybe they fully agree, maybe they're being ironic repost. Mm -hmm. But then you get into this next layer where it's just pure fetishization. Another phenomenon on TikTok and Twitter is guys making memes about having a BPD girlfriend. Mm. And some of those memes are like silly in a sense, I guess. Maybe not necessarily harmful, but definitely some extent of like, oh, I'm so horny for the idea of a crazy girlfriend. But then others are like, my girlfriend with borderline personality disorder has been abusive to me in the past. And just sort of representing that behavior as normative and kind of something that you sign up for when you have a relationship with someone with BPD, which that is its own can of worms. Mm -hmm. But what really grinds my gears and is difficult for me because sometimes these tweets are so damn funny <laughs> is guys making tweets about the BPD girlfriend. I hate when men are funny I about women. It. I hate it <laughs> because as a man, why are you telling jokes? There's something different about a BPD girly making a joke about the depths of her soul versus her boyfriend doing it. Yeah, I think it's it's exactly what you were talking about earlier about the difference between defanging and refanging. Absolutely. For example, the tweet that I'm thinking of is a guy who tweeted, BPD girlfriend waving a knife at me from across the kitchen, screaming about how I'm on a CIA mission to fuck her sister. I'm cowering on the top of the fridge trying to throw Xanax into her open mouth like a carnival game. <laughs> This tweet fascinates me because... It's a poem. It's really. a poem. If it was about a man, it would be considered a schizo posting yes. type thing. I think a hallmark of the BPD girl is her disorganized and pervasive attachment to another person, but specifically men. And we'll get into how that's complicated by queerness, etc. But, you know, a favorite person is an identifiable and consistent pathological phenomenon in the diagnosis. But yeah. you see a lot of that in these memes where the creator of the image is acknowledging their disruptive attachment to usually a partner. Mm -hmm. right? We have this one where it's Patrick Bateman with the subtitle ASPD boyfriend and then I can't remember her name. That's Amy Dunn. Thank you. Yeah. Amy Dunn. Yeah, Rosamund Pike. <laughs> I, for, I, I forgot her. I'm so sorry. Oh. Our forgotten queen. Cancel him for misogyny, guys. <laughs> I, we even watched the movie. For <laughs> no, literally. I mean, just Amy Dunn is not really like a memorable name. I think it's intentional too. 
that it's just like a whatever yeah. kind of name. I'm also intentionally forgetting it. Um. <laughs> and her label says BPD girlfriend. It's actually the scene from the movie where she and um, her boyfriend are at the party for the amazing Amy gets married book, and then he later proposes to her there. I mean, this shit goes deep. It's it's very intriguing to me, but. The cultural definition is just one layer, like we talked about. Like, to also really explore this issue and do it justice, which is the goal of the pod in many ways, we need to talk about the clinical definition of BPD and take a look at what this diagnosis looks like. Obviously, we will be relying on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of um, Mental Disorders, of mental disorders, which is rife with its own criticism and whatnot, but that is how we are currently clinically diagnosing it. Yeah, and it's funny that we bring up this meme in relation to that because I'm pretty sure that uh, borderline personality disorder is under the umbrella of antisocial personality disorders. So it's it so funny that it is, yeah. this has been split down the gender line Yeah, in this meme. disorder. It's described as a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and affects, and marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. So you have to meet five or more of the following criteria to be diagnosed with the disorder. One, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. Three, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self, which I'm sorry, but here at the navel gaze, I believe we all agree that an unstable sense of self is integral. <laughs> yes. It's to any good discussion. Door, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, check your sense of self at the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, number four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging. So this is something like compulsive spending, um, compulsive sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, or binge eating. I've definitely heard some people who, like within the BPD community, describe it not as like promiscuity or sex addiction, but as sex as self-harm. Yes. So I think that's, that's an important thing to include um, when talking about this criteria. But uh, number five, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures or threats, or self-mutilating behavior. So I believe that includes gestural suicidal behavior, but then also serious suicide attempts. I think I heard a statistic that that people diagnosed with BPD are 50 times more likely to pass by suicide, which is super upsetting Mm -hmm. um, and is a good reason to have these criteria so you can identify groups at risk. Number six, affective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood. For example, intense episodic dysphoria, irritability, or anxiety usually lasting a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. Number seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Number eight, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. 
And nine, transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. I mean, this is what makes it so interesting to me that people online who are not clinically diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or may not even identify with more than one or two of these qualities are like, haha, BPD girl meme, so funny, retweet. Or kind of like leaning into the quote-unquote aesthetic of the BPD girly. When what we do know about this disorder is it's so debilitating, it's really difficult for borderline personality disorder patients to get the support that they need because um, it puts such a strain on their interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and having that interpersonal community is so important with any kind of mental illness yeah the stigma is huge the stigma is massive that was one thing when i was researching uh for this episode i was so like shocked at how bbd has become a joke yeah i mean there's (laughs) there's therapists that will not take patients with bpd as clients yeah it's like you don't you don't really hear that about a lot of other like disorders or mental illness but the diagnosis of bpd is actually like relatively young the term was coined in 1938 by adolf stern i feel like a reason the bpd has become such a mm, amorphous thing in the public imagination is because its name doesn't really describe it very well um but he used the term borderline to describe a group of patients uh with what he thought to be a mild form of schizophrenia, so on the borderline between neurosis and psychosis. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah it really does not explain that. Right? I yeah. always think of that Madonna song. Wait, what? What Madonna? Madonna? <laughs> I'm so gay. Gay. Yeah. Sing it. Gays but are number one. I'm not singing it, but it's like... <laughs> Can you describe it? Something about meet me on the borderline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait, that's... <laughs> Is that a black eye? I thought it was yeah, a black That's furry. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Me halfway? Right off the borderline? That's crazy. In my mind, Fergie became Madonna. <laughs> I think that's, that's beautiful and it it speaks to Madonna's okay. agelessness. They're both crazy women, so... This like, is true. People... Okay, I'm not gonna go on my Fergie tangent. <laughs> Wait, can we turn to that one? Just drop that down. Just drop that down. We'll have a Fergie app. Yes. Um, so the diagnosis existed in Adolf Stern's definition for a number of years. I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, people started thinking of it more as within the schizophrenia family. And psychoanalysts like Otto Kernberg were using it to refer to like a really broad spectrum of issues. Um, so I think that is, you know, over those 30 plus years, it starts getting diluted in its meaning. Um, and then another 30 years, another 30 years, and then we get the BPD girly. Yeah. I know that was a lot of no, <laughs> dot, sure. dot, dots, but... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but but it, it begs the question, like, how did this happen? Especially when we're looking at, like, in that psychoanalytic school of thought, everything is so rigidly gendered, and the male patient is usually eccentric, and the female patient is usually neurotic. And it is a type of pathology for both of them to be the opposite anyway. And then you have these women that are on the borderline and are disrupting these patterns of behavior with the very nature of their illness. And then it also, by definition, is trying to include multiple categories at the same time. Like when you're reading this list, it's like, okay, so these poor individuals have everything wrong with them, like every possible domain. (laughs) They are suffering and struggling. And that's the design, right? 
Yeah, it's also, it's weird to read through those criteria because, one, I was like, well, yeah, I kind of know what that feels like. Uh, um, but then also it's like you read some of them and it's like well maybe that's a symptom of something else like maybe that's not something that makes up a mental illness but it is a response to trauma yeah you might have to correct me if I'm wrong on some of this but from what I understand because BPD is such a tricky assemblage of symptoms no one can really seem to agree on like what causes BPD Mm -hmm. I think that's right right. so Some people say it's genetic, like you're more likely to inherit it. And some people say it's traumagenic, meaning you acquire it specifically through, I think, childhood trauma is what a lot of people say. But it's like, because there's not really like a set cause, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of what we're all pointing to, right? Is like, in a way, this is so amorphous that I can now understand how people can step into this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to get to is why people do this. Mm -hmm. Because to me, at least, I'm not seeing how it can be empowering to embody this label. Yeah, Um, I think think maybe a good place to start answering that question is to look at the kinds of crazy girls that we see in media and maybe pick out a few crazy bitches of note and uh, kind of tell each other about them. So I have a litany of Gabe facts or Gabe observations. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. A rouge fact is trademarked, actually. Yeah, so I don't really <laughs> want to get on your bad side. <laughs> um, when we were first discussing what is a BPD girly, we came up with so many different kinds. I think it behooves us to separate them into different categories. Here is a selection of crazy bitches that came to mind. The first one is the iconic Manic Pixie Dream Girl, who, through some discussion, we kind of came to agree is primarily something that exists in media. These were once very popular. You saw them in all sorts of movies and books. Now they're kind of endangered. We don't really see them as much anymore. I think that because women became hyper-aware of the prescriptive category of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, the relationship with the label became very meta. And then that became meta. And then that became meta. This kind of like reflective, entropic self-identification crisis. I have been called this. You were called a manic pixie girl? (laughs) I was called this. What was the situation? The the situation was that I believe the person was trying to pay me a compliment. And (laughs) it was not. (laughs) You know a lot of... So one thing, historically, men are very weird to me. Please remember this, listeners, whenever I share an Arouge fact. So I was paid this as a compliment, and I think that just came up to me when you were talking about how it's meta and that accelerates the label into obsolescence, because there's something so fundamentally cringe about this to me, and I think it was cringe to women slash girls at the time, because it's so male-lensed. Women are not writing Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Men were writing Manic mm-hmm. Pixie Dream Girls. Yeah, I do want to add in the origin, which was like surprisingly in 2007. It was written and coined supposedly by Nicholas Rabin, who's a film critic, 
and he was kind of panning this movie, uh, Elizabeth Town. So it's a Cameron Crowe movie, and it's starring Kirsten Dunst, and he's talking about Dunst's character. Um, and he says that Dunst embodies a character type I like to call the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. The MPDG exists solely in the fevered imaginations of the sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. So, as you said, it's like it tends to be a tool that they use to instruct other male viewers about how to love life, quote-unquote. I was talking to my Valentine, who loves being crazy with me, and he said about the titular Manic Pixie Dream Girl, quote, She loves life more than she loves men, which is unforgivably schizophrenic. Which, at the time, you know, we were being glib and silly, but I do think it is really true to the idea of the BPD girly, considering that it's the borderline of neurosis and... Psychosis. Psychosis, yes. So, yes, on one hand, we have the Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Um, I want that to be kind of one end of the spectrum, chronologically, and then contemporarily we have the BPD girlies. Um, in my kind of thrown-together definition of them is that it's an amorphous label that includes self-diagnosis, diagnosis of strangers, and sometimes professional diagnosis. These girls are faced with the mortal ordeal of being known as a crazy bitch, and this category fundamentally sets girls apart from the monopoly of male schizo posters. So I kind of found myself thinking, based on these categories, if men are sociopathic because they have yet to discover empathy, then women are BPD girlies because they've abandoned it. So yeah, we have Manic Pixie Dream Girls on one end and BPD girlies on the other end. And between these two uh, major categories in time, here are some other labels within the crazy bitches taxonomy. Dissociative feminists, which is a, a term you don't see as much in 2023, but I think post-2020, like post-fleabag, you saw a lot mm -hmm. of it. Totally. This is somewhere between the hyper-self-aware media-consuming girly and the BPD girly. They're usually uninterested in pathological descriptors for their behaviors. And I would say, based on my anthropological observation as a man... They're probably the most superficially well-adjusted of the crazy bitches, but they totally can command a mean popular girl level of manipulation mm. or just kind of attitude, which they may or may not use for the greater good. From what I've seen, these women tend to love cinema and have good design. I definitely get on their letterboxed or their Depop likes mm -hmm. and just like <laughs> pilfer from them. <laughs> um, they might have also had a vaguely religious Twitter presence in 2020 or 2021. They're often fixated on authenticity. I kind of think of them as the libertarians of women. Which They're giving a, very much red scare. Yeah. I was just saying, like, is, are you, is that who you're subtweeting with vaguely religious Twitter presence? Yeah. yeah or is it me? Bit. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking of myself pre-transition a little bit. Ooh, um, get her Yeah. Love her. Make you rest in peace. And <laughs> also, we have to pay homage to the original Tumbarinas. They really began the wave of media literacy that paved the way for contemporary dissociative feminists. They totally popularized the call for, quote, awareness and representation, unquote. They overlap with gender queerness. And so because of that, I want to make it very clear that I'm not trying to say that all tumblerinas were women because they really weren't. They really weren't. They really weren't. Emphasis um, on they. These, specifically the female tumblerinas, they really were some of the craziest bitches you will ever meet. 
And we know this because we are put off by them calling themselves crazy. We rebuke their self-diagnosis in exchange for our own diagnosis. If they say they're crazy, we think they're doing it for attention. But when they do things for attention, we call them crazy. They're really just like the queens of cringe. I love them so much. If you're a Tumblrina or a former Tumblrina, please email us. I want yes, to talk. I, I will to make s- an exception and talk to you. <laughs> I'm not being facetious. Like, I truly think that this culturally was so massively important. I mean, could you have had girls crying on TikTok with their full government name in their profile <laughs> if you didn't have the original Tumblrinas? I mean, mm-hmm. like, that is where the overshare. Yes. Really, really originates. Totally. So, I mean, salute. I'm saluting them. Hailing from a different corner of the internet, we have the Fem Cells. This is a really finicky label. It could totally be its own episode. Um, but to me, the Fem Cells kind of mark when internet culture truly became enmeshed with the mainstream. Their aesthetic borrows a lot from the culture of message boards like 4chan or lolcow. If you aren't really familiar with either of those, I don't really recommend looking them up. Um, 4chan. Yeah, yeah, God bless. Yeah. Godspeed. 4chan is like um, kind of just an anonymous message board uh, with a lot of different interests. And then Lolcow is specifically a gossip site. So these fem cells, these self-proclaimed fem cells, they really embrace a lonely, nihilistic, hateful, and disaffected attitude, much like an incel. I also want to note in this self-described title, the omission of the prefixes ball or in which are used in vol-cell or in-cell, voluntary celibate or involuntary celibate. Those are like necessary prefixes to describe the nature of one's celibacy. Mm-hmm. And so by positioning their celibacy as both voluntary and involuntary, they call into question the relationship between consent and being a woman. And I really want us to keep the fem cell in mind as we start to talk about the relationship between consent and craziness and specifically um the attachment of the BPD girly to her favorite person. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's a bridging, I think, that happens between schizo posters and BPD girlies, and femcells are kind of that bridge. This <laughs> last category was brought to my attention by my Valentine. Um, we were talking kind of more about like the race politics in this whole discussion, and he brought up the yandere, which is a Japanese trope. The word comes from yandeiru, which is to be sick, and dere dere, which is to be infatuated or lovey-dovey. So in the American context, this has become kind of the inverse of a manic pixie dream girl. Keep in mind, like we said earlier, the manic pixie dream girl is fascinated and obsessed and attached to life itself. Mm-hmm. But the yandere, her attachment is usually to a man. Mm-hmm. She is hyper fixated on a man. It's an all-consuming obsession. He is her life. Favorite person. A favorite person, yes. Ah. So... I want to also keep in mind, borrowing a quote from my Valentine, that anime to the uninitiated is already a place of perversion and unrealistic expectations of girls anyhow. So the way that this trope has been imported into America is inherently involved with the fetishization of East Asian women. The Yandere is totally obsessed with the single man. She's utilizing violence and manipulation to gain access to him. And it makes me think of the the meme we mentioned earlier, yeah. the, the trope of the anime girl who's yes. posting these like kind of disturbing rants. It's all tied into this idea that Asian women are crazy about white men. Yeah. Like they fundamentally have an impaired relationship with consent when they're crazy is this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
talk about male gaze. Yeah. The yeah. projection that goes into constructing the BPDGF is is really terrifying on a lot of levels because I think it plays back into this idea of like we talked about this with AI a little bit. Underlying a ton of cultural phenomena is like that question of like how do I put my dick in this? And that is the how do I put my dick in this part of this episode. Uh... Of like, oh my gosh, like the BPDGF, how can this be something that's about me and my desire and my pleasure when that is so far from my mind when I'm thinking about this phenomenon? If anything, I'm like, why is this catching on? Oh my god, okay, this is maybe like too far of a tangent and we can cut it out, but um, I was looking on the Nymphet Discord. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Yeah, we gotta Um, leave that out. (laughs) We have to bleep out Red Scare too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I came across an article that one of the users posted, um, and it's it's talking about the quote-unquote girl internet, and it's kind of this critique of how the whole, like, girl culture, well, let me pull it Girl up. dinner. Yeah, okay. girl dinner. It was yeah. about girl dinner, and how about how, like, how are you going to call calories in, calories out, like, just, like, the quotidian act of eating? Well, th- this how are you is... going to call that a girl dinner? Why are you, you going to make that a This is like girl? the mega brain moment I had in the chat the other day where I was like, is that what you were thinking about? Yes! yes! <laughs> where I was like, wait a fucking minute. Why are we gendering attachment styles? Anybody can be avoidant. Anybody can be anxious. You're not behaving like a dude. And I feel like so many people latch onto this and then a ton of other people are like, um, they're just having fun. Like, girl only girls get this and like guys wouldn't get it and it's like you're just fucking eating food that's not like a meal that you intentionally put together right you're eating your girl dinner you're taking your hot girl walk you're listening to sad girl music you're taking your shower like your everything shower yes you're that girl you're the it girl you're watching Barbie movie Mm -hmm. the girl movie by the girl director because Um, you can't watch a three-hour movie like, yeah. that was like a <laughs> the boy bit. movie the boy movie oh my god oh my god so we're getting off topic but, but i do want to interject really quick because i think this is important so my theory about the phenomenon presented in that article is that as we have more and more mainstream interrogation of like what does make a woman we have to create increasingly esoteric goalposts for what is the female gender like if, if we can Absolutely. admit as a society that like your body actually has nothing to do with your gender, then, like, well, maybe girl dinner is what your gender is. But these things are always going to be... <laughs> well, it's true. It's I mean, true. that's and that's yeah. why it feels so ridiculous, yeah. because yeah. performing because gender is ridiculous. Is ridiculous. Because and, it's so abstract and ridiculous. And hyper-femininity and bimboism is getting so popular on the internet and on TikTok for this exact reason, where it's like, nothing I do is inherently feminine. So maybe if I do a ton of girl things all together, that makes me a girl. Which is why I want to make the argument that the reason girls are accessing this refanged, crazy, BPD girly thing is because it is a way of accessing gender specifically, not femininity, because that's mm-hmm. so big. But like, if you really don't feel like anyone can understand you, you probably don't feel like anyone can understand what it's like to be a girl. Maybe it's easier to treat a set of symptoms as the check, what is it, the categories for a gender? Can I, I say this? Criteria. Say this? Okay, okay. I'll the say criteria, thank you. I was going to say, I'll say this for you. Maybe thank it you. is easier to be a BPD girl than it is to be a girl. Genius. For sure. Yeah. I Yeah, I think that, like, the term BPD girly 
it's it's a it's a means of packaging this ridiculous ununderstandable thing into like a com- compartmentalized small cute diminutive feminine petite etc condition mm-hmm. and then yeah i don't know does that defang it does that refang it all i know is it makes me uncomfortable and i don't like it <laughs> exactly <laughs> women do really make me uncomfortable Facts. Yes. I mean, I'm Especially that. when they're crazy fucking think about crazy bitches in the context of media because that's the navel gaze promise we will always bring it back to pieces of media and in envisioning this episode one thing that i wanted to do was have us each defend our favorite crazy bitch and i have to go with my favorite amy dunn from gone girl i have such an intense parasocial relationship with this book and the author because it's the first iBook I think I ever bought on my phone. So now whenever I reset my iPhone, it downloads directly. Did you buy it on like iStore, the iTunes yeah, store? Yeah, I guess I bought it on the iBooks iTunes store How much situation. Was it? $2.99. Maybe two ninety nine. Um, and what so a steal! I know it was it's, a, so good. it's such a good price. You can't get shit for two ninety nine anymore because uh-uh. we're in a recession. Yeah, but. <laughs> Now, whenever I reset my iPhone, my contacts won't be on there. Fucking my photos won't be on there. But Gone Girl, <laughs> she is there. <laughs> she is fucking She's there. always with you. She's with me. And I feel like Gone Girl is culturally ubiquitous enough that I won't give too much of a background. But the premise really is it's this like domestic noir is how it's categorized in a lot of literary criticism about the novel. And you have this unreliable narrator, Amy Dunn. The way the novel starts out is you think that her husband has murdered her and you're having this narrative set up by a series of diary entries. At the same time, the narrative is showing the police engaging her husband, Nick Dunn, in this investigation. About halfway through, there is this really... Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Sorry, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's a good point. Um, About halfway through, and this is a huge spoiler, you find out that Amy has orchestrated all of this as revenge on her husband, Nick, for stealing her life, ruining her life, etc. From there, it diverges and you see, you know, who ultimately comes out on top. It becomes a game and a race between the husband and the wife. Let us be clear. We will always spoil... The thing we are talking about. Yeah. First yeah. of all, why didn't you predict what we were going to talk about? Yeah. And I, read and watch it in the entire. You should be yeah. psychoanalyzing us every episode to determine what the next episode will be, and then read accordingly. The thing is, is that when I watched that movie, it was years and years after it had come out, and I was still oblivious to the twist. Oh. So I felt the need to protect others, uh, or like protect that payoff. The payoff is crazy. I mean, it's a good-ass movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's a banger. I mean, like, we really enjoyed it when we did our little rewatch. And I think with Amy Dunn, what I really thought about the most with this was so much of her craziness revolves around the man that makes her crazy. And I think that's also true for a ton of the crazy women that we'll talk about in this episode and just constructions of crazy women in general. I mean, a lot of that is because you frame femininity as a pathology. In the prep that we did for this episode, Gabe says that women are patient zero of being silly, which I thought was hilarious and I think really captures that. 
So Amy Dunn is this controversial figure, and of course I ride for her. I think it makes total sense to <laughs> try and uh, frame your bitch husband for your murder once he moves you out to Hannibal, Missouri, and gobbles up your trust fund. Like, I don't really see why everyone hates her. <laughs> but what really is the departure here is that it's showing on screen woman-on-man violence. And we talk a little bit about this dichotomy of women being portrayed as the angel in the house or this monster. And so Amy is very much this monstrous figure. This ironically leads to a ton of criticism of both the book and the movie by saying that it's really misogynistic to portray a woman as so villainous, which I think is very, very middle school level analysis and reading. When did this movie come out? And when did the book come out? The book came out in 2012, and the movie came out in 2014. Because, not in terms of content, but in terms of viewer reactions, this movie makes me think a lot of Midsummer. Yeah. In which people were oh. just like, good for her. Good for her. Good for this little blonde white girl being extremely violent. Lucille Bluth voice. Good for her. Good for her. No, but absolutely. I mean, like, it is... Definitely a product of these women both being conventionally attractive white women that everyone's like, yes, queen, you know, be that violent person. And it is, I think, a function of they start out seeming like the angel, but then they become that monster. And for reference, the angel and the monster, these are not terms of our own invention. Mm -hmm. Um, We, in our research, came across this article titled Catastrophically Romantic Radical Inversions of Gilbert and Gubar's Monstrous Angel and Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. So that also led us to another text called The Mad Woman in the Attic, The Woman Writer in the 19th Century Literary Imagination. All you really need to know about the monster versus the angel These are two archetypes of femininity, and a woman can be either or. In either scenario, she is fundamentally lacking humanity or transcending humanity. So the angel in the house, right, is able to do every domestic chore, is like fulfilling every pocket of labor that is unattended by the husband, is godly and perfect. She's the maiden. She's the maiden. And then the monster is monstrous she's a crazy bitch like she doesn't even deserve to be in the house because she's so base and animalistic so just for reference that's what we're talking about when we say monster or angel Mm -hmm. that is really formative in kind of my reading of this when we're looking at it on the crazy bitches episode because i mean amy dunn is the crazy bitch of the 2010s i think i was asking you know what makes her so crazy? What makes her so unlikable? And a lot of these qualities, I think, in representations of women tend to be a perfect circle. Sometimes a crazy bitch is just someone with qualities that you dislike. And craziness as a condition that you apply to a woman may not have anything to do with her mental state or any kind of mental illnesses that she may have. With Amy, a lot of people dislike her in the novel because she is frigid and kind of uptight and is a classic New Yorker. Like, she doesn't want to integrate with everybody around and be Midwestern and be this stay-at-home wife kind of figure that her husband has now forced her into. She doesn't want to be the angel in the house, so she becomes a monster. And I think in that process, there is so much difference in her madness relative to the craziness of some of the other women that we'll discuss Because Amy is uniquely psychopathic. She is destructive to others over herself. And I think that's another quality of crazy women that we discuss. And I think in the BPD girly archetype and some of these other archetypes, a lot of that destructiveness is oriented to the self. 
like I am ruining my own life, I am having an episode, I'm uprooting all of these things. Versus Amy, I mean, she wants to get hers. She wants to bring these people down. May I make a counterpoint? Yeah. The iconic kill self post-it note on the calendar. Well, I mean, yes, but then there's irony to that, right? Like, even when she is, for example, staging her own murder and bleeding out all over the floor, she acquires the correct tools to make it be like a blood draw at a blood bank instead of doing things in a way that would discomfort or harm her immediately. And I think that there is an element of the psychopathy in that where it's like, to us, that's still like, okay, you're willing to do all of that. Like, that does sound like it hurts to be like draining that much blood out of your mm -hmm. body. But for her, it's worth it in the grand scheme of things because it will hurt her husband more. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So I guess at least that is my interpretation of it. I think in general, she's more destructive to others than she is to herself versus with a lot of the other crazy women we would discuss, that balance is tipped in the opposite direction. The kill self to-do list as a means to an end rather than an end itself. Yes, exactly. She has a lot of iconic quotes also. I think the cool girl monologue, if for nothing else, you should definitely read the book for the cool girl monologue because the longer form is in the book. And it ends with Amy Riley noting, every girl was supposed to be this cool girl. And if you weren't, there was something wrong with you. And she also notes that she waited patiently, years, for the pendulum to swing the other way, for men to start reading Jane Austen, learn how to knit, pretend to love cosmos, organize scrapbook parties, and make out with each other while we leer. And then we'd say, yeah, he's a cool guy. But it never happened. And so there's this sense of... That's not in the movie. That's not in the movie. And a lot of her animosity, it's not really even about Nick. It is about the relationship of women to men and how much her life changes when she achieves this goal of heterosexual partnership. And now she has to play by all of these rules and to even get to the point of that partnership, she had to change herself so much. Can I make a Freudian interjection? Yeah, please. <laughs> Always. I think that this book and movie are the perfect example of the origins of craziness. So yeah. I think it was mentioned earlier, this idea of girls being the patient zero, of being silly. Women being insane, it's a very time-honored tradition such that they were the original crazy bitch. I know that sounds self-reflexive and exceedingly obvious, but like... Tautological. <laughs> yeah. The category of being crazy was invented to describe women who were being socially unacceptable. Um, and, you know, like, let's be very clear. These were white European women. Yeah. Because the idea was that these white women were deviating from a sense of normalcy and could be therapeutically corrected, you know, by Freud and Young and Rank and all those contemporaries. But like, yeah, other women, like women of color, um, queer people, and men also, mm -hmm. they could not be crazy in the same way. And that's why we see today, like, craziness is associated with being a woman. Like, if a man is crazy, he is emasculated. Or, so. in fact, the craziness of men and women of color is inherently dangerous, yet white women because of the fragility that's ascribed to their brand of gender, for example, it's like, yes, queen, get his ass kind yeah. of vibes, as with Midsommar and Gone Girl both. I almost feel like with Midsommar and Gone Girl, people recognize that, you know, these are not women that we would want to be or encounter in real life, but the fantasy of them is symbolically so important. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of that meme that's like, Aren't you tired of being nice? Don't you want to just go ape shit? Yeah, It's like, she's an externalization of this power fantasy. 
Men have power fantasies about going to war and dying for their country or having to save a woman and fighting a dude in a bar. And meanwhile, women are having these incredibly elaborate, quote-unquote, feminine, feminine rage. note, kill self. Fantasy. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, so much of it, like, that is where I can understand the mental backflips that it takes to get to the point of Yas queening Amy Dunn, okay? Because I see how she took control and refanged herself and embodied that power by doing a stereotypically male thing, which is, I guess, going true crime rabbit hole, faking your own death, abandoning the people around you, that sort of thing. But with the BPD girl, how are you becoming more powerful? Primarily, like we're talking about Freud, this is such a designed-to-diagnose-women disease, right? And women do not have a powerful social role under the patriarchy, which I, for one, learned for the first time at the Greta Gerwig Barbie movie. <laughs> <laughs> they were very new to this whole, what's it called, feminism? Um, and there's a thing called, like, patriarchy? Yeah, I think they intersect. So yeah. I, I don't no? think that's real. Oh, I mean, it might not. I, it was in a movie. We don't know. You're if right. If, if it's in a movie, it's not real. Yeah, yeah honey, so. I, um, I just don't think that's true. Oh, my bad. We can cut this out, guys. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. No, I, I've literally had a man look at me and be like, I don't think that's true. After I said something that was a fact. Oh, good lord. It wasn't even a rush fact. No, it, it was, was like a, a fact. real fact. <laughs> it was like something that's actually true. <laughs> It was yeah. about, like, the chemical interactions between Nor- silver and epoxy. Like, it was, like... <laughs> Jail! He hates women in STEM, clearly. He, yeah, he's clearly. not a woman in STEM. Yeah. Clearly. Anyway. Anyways. So, yeah. I mean, there's much more that I could say about Amy Dunn, but I think I'm so interested in the Freudian power dynamics. If you love this movie, and I bet that there are some gazers out there that have a similar unhealthy attachment to Gone Girl, <laughs> you better hit up that inbox. I want to hear the meditations. I want to hear the thoughts. And I want to know what you think about the departure in fanging women in the Gone Girl sense, and then also in the sense of like, I am now going to make the 15th anime girl BPDGF meme to post onto my Instagram account that is called at crazy princess disorder. I feel like I follow that account. <laughs> no, I mean, and I do. <laughs> and it's you. And I'm running the account. Yeah. And with that, I hand the magic conch to Molly to discuss another bitch in question. Thank you. Thank you. I thought long and hard about what crazy bitch I hold near and dear to my heart. And I cycled through. You were cycling? Yeah, I was cycling. Isn't that a mentally ill thing? Like rapid cycling. It's definitely a woman thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. to cycle. <laughs> I forgot. I don't, about know. That. I don't do that shit anymore. Sounds like you should have picked yourself. <laughs> but no, I, at first I was thinking about Clementine Krasinski from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think that's a really hallmark classic depiction of a manic pixie dream girl for sure. I thought a lot about Joan of Arc. Uh, especially like as portrayed by Luc Besson in the movie The Messenger. I think I've always thought that that was a really mm, annoying depiction of a historical character. But eventually I settled on a character who was much older, and that is Livia Soprano, the mother of the protagonist, uh, Tony Soprano, in the HBO drama series The Sopranos. And she is elderly, she is manipulative. She's a she, huge bitch. She is a huge bitch. And I chose her not because I have such a good 
I'm sorry, I hate her so much. Like when you said that you were gonna do this, my toes curled. So <laughs> mine curled in pleasure. I love her character. The thing is, I I love her and not because she's a good person. I think she is just absolutely vile. She's rotten to her core. But I'm not defending her like your defense of Amy Dunn. I'm defending her like the importance of having really unlikable, unsexy, mean women. And I think The Sopranos, it all hinges on an analysis of what happens to a man who fits a, a really traditional, like, violent, machismo, you know, characterization of masculinity. What happens to that kind of man when he has to deal with someone like Livia Soprano, his mother? She's super manipulative, she is super reactive, she's almost always miserable and really intent upon bringing others to her level of misery or displeasure. Um, and she often does this <laughs> in super funny ways. I don't know, I'll read some of them. She's having a fight with Tony and he says something about her losing her facilities and needing to be taken care of, you know, with like, at-home help. And she exclaims, go to the kitchen, take the knife from the ham and stab me right here in the chest. That would hurt me less than what you just said. <laughs> Which is just so funny, so manipulative and so dramatic. Women love stabbing. Yeah. 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 Another sort of guilt trippy quote she has about her son, Tony. Sure, he talks about me and complains. I did this, I did that. I handed over my life to my children on a silver platter, and this <laughs> is how he repays me. Ooh, uh, really embodied her. She's a diva. She she's, is kind she's of a diva. diva. Yeah, I mean, like, you see her in flashbacks, and she's, like, totally done up in that 70s housewife fashion. Now that her husband, the late Johnny Soprano, has passed... Um, he was a mob boss, he was the head of the family, and a super violent man, a bad husband and a bad father by all accounts. Her resounding quote is, Johnny, he was a saint. She also has honorable mentions like, just send me to the glue factory. Um, <laughs> if, if anybody sort of expresses a complaint or a challenge they're facing, she says, poor you. And then the, she, you did the face really yeah, well. That, she like, has a crazy I face. I feel like she's in here with us. Ooh, I'm scared. Perhaps her most famous catchphrase is, I wish the Lord would take me now. Ah, uh, yeah. So good. It's like, you know, constantly threatening the people around her with her imminent demise. Yeah. Which is an absolutely insane thing to do. And I think it's something that is a particularly sharp knife to wield as a mother. Speaking of stopping, it's like you threaten Great the, metaphor. you threaten the people around you with no longer providing the care or support or also the care and support in question. Like no, no, this, no, 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 this, yeah. <laughs> this fantasy version of I'm such a good mother and you're so lucky to have me and um, how could you do this to me? Right, the I gave you my trip. life on a silver platter and this mm -hmm. is how you repay me. I mean. The first episode of Sopranos is Tony visits a therapist, which is sort of an unheard of thing to do if you are a mob boss, if you are an Italian-American man. And he seeks these therapy for these recurring panic attacks that are later revealed to be compounded by the stress of being the sole caretaker of his aging mother. And I wanted to bring her up because I think it adds an interesting element of looking at the crazy woman from an age perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, she was always a bad mother, but everything got really bad once she started getting old, when she stopped being able to take care of herself. 
And this is something that we can talk about too um, when we get to Gabe's fighter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, it made me think about this bell curve of female characters mm-hmm. in that the bottom of the chart is that lowly base animal, unlikable, unforgivable monster. Mm-hmm. And then the top of that bell chart is angelic motherhood, womanhood, placidity, what have you. And so I think that the x-axis of that bell chart is time. So when you're a child, when you are a young adult, you're this manic pixie dream girl. You're a crazy BPD girly. You have this instability that comes with youth. And as you age, you reach this pinnacle of stability, of self-possession, of self-determination, often with motherhood, sometimes plain old womanhood. And then as you age, you begin to move back toward that base lack of self-possession. So you have like the old bat, the crazy cat lady, someone like Livia Soprano, who spouts off at her whim and is not in touch with her reality, with how her actions truly affect the people in her life. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking love her character so much. She's definitely one of those characters where people could take her superficially and be like, she's a terrible representation of women. It's so shallow that she's the one that caused this trauma in Tony, which is such a like an inaccurate reading of the show. But what you're saying about age being such a key factor, I see that the most in the relationship between the BPD criteria and um, threats of death or suicide. Yes. Because that takes mm. a completely different form when someone with BPD ages. Like, the threat of my imminent death. Yeah. The crazy thing about Livia Soprano is the actor that portrayed her, Nancy Marchand, died during the process of filming The Sopranos. She died within the first two seasons, and so they had to write her character out. So she was talking about her death, and then she died. Within the production of the show, all those actors who knew her as a colleague did lose her. Yeah. Which I think adds, I mean... Not to romanticize it too much, you know, it's sad when someone dies, but it's like it adds such a haunting quality to her performance, which is another reason why I love this character. Definitely. Anyway. Because so many people are contemporarily interested in the BPD girly affect or aesthetic or community, I'm really curious to see how this group ages. Yeah. I want to see what this looks like in an older age. Because I think a lot of them are Gen Z, just graduating college or maybe entering the workforce. They're about to enter a period of their life where they're expected to be stable. Mm. In a recession. In a recession. (laughs) In this economy. In this economy, you can't be a BPD girly because you have to pay your fucking rent. You have to take on a mask of normality, which is why we see resentment in these older characters. A resentment that you can only accumulate through time. Totally. Yeah. I think there's also a component of the loss of beauty that comes with it. Like yes. there's, as you simultaneously gain stability, you're losing this beauty that we all know is a pretty significant social currency for women. And I think I'm so interested in how Livia Soprano, like what qualities of the quote unquote BPD girl are you left with? when you near that aging kind of plateau. Because, I mean, everyone wants a BPD GF while she's young and sexy. Somebody call Susan Sontag. Right now! (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like everyone, quote-unquote, everyone is being used very loosely here. But, like, the craziness is attractive while the person is still attractive. Mm. And then at the end of your life, you become this bitch, hag, old bat who is terrible to be around. 
instead of choosing a third woman, I decided to choose three women. Which because is, you're such a feminist. I'm such a feminist. I wanted to do a little bit more. But I quite literally chose three women, which is a film from, I want to say, 1977, uh, directed and written by Robert Altman. Three Women is this very languid, oceanic exploration of dreamscapes and femininity, familial, romantic, and platonic relationships. The film was supposedly bestowed upon Altman in his dreams. That being said, the actresses involved did do a lot of legwork involving their characters. It's Shelley Duvall, Sissy Spacek, and Janice Janice Rule. Um, And they play these three women who all encounter each other in this extremely dry, almost Western Californian landscape. The reason I wanted to talk about this movie is because it's actually one of my mom's favorite movies. And another woman. Another woman I know, my mother. (laughs) Something that was particularly of interest to me is the way friendships are depicted and three women. They have this incredible dimension. These women need each other. They are obsessed with each other. A quick gist of the plot. Pinky, Sissy Spacek, is this kind of doll-eyed waif who shows up at this bizarre geriatric pool facility. It's like a rehab. A sanitarium? Yeah, it's like a rehab for old bitches. Um, <laughs> there's a very amniotic womb-like pool. And she gets hired there somehow and is taken under the wing of Shelley Duvall's character, who is named Millie. Her full name is Mildred. And together they kind of form this bizarre friendship of circumstance where Pinky is very clearly obsessed with Millie, and Millie is obsessed with herself, or at least the idea of who she could be. Eventually Pinky moves in with Millie. The stakes of their relationship are brought to this fever pitch when... Pinky starts usurping Millie's identity after um, a fall from the balcony into a pool. All the while, this other character, Janice Rule's character named Willie, I think. Is in the background. In the background, painting these gorgeous, disturbing murals of lizard people. Obviously would love to go in depth and talk about every single event that happens, but I would prefer that you just go out and watch it because I think it's something that's really worth experiencing. You know, it's not about the quote-unquote story that's told. It's really the malleability of the relationships between Pinky, Millie, and Willie and how you can't pin it down, really. Like, what these women are to each other. And that felt realistic. It's about friendships in which you are the same person. Mm -hmm. Sisters, mother and daughter, husband and wife, wives, best friends, worst enemies, etc. All at the same time. Because Millie and Pinky, there's this interesting thread throughout where at first Pinky is like, I want to be best friends with Millie. And then she becomes her roommate. And then she's like, I want to be your twin. Mm -hmm. But they quite physically can't be each other's twins. And Millie isn't really reciprocating this desire. So it makes sense that Pinky ends up trying to ingratiate her identity into Millie because it's the only way to be close to her. Mm -hmm. Well, if Millie is so obsessed with herself, then I might as well be Millie surrounding all this deep psychological turmoil the thing that connects these women is actually a man mm-hmm. his name is edgar and he's this extremely stereotypical man he's wearing red he's western he's shooting a gun and his wife is willie and she's very pregnant oh yeah i forgot that she's willie is a pregnant. paintress and she's also super pregnant yeah. yeah she's like lugging around her belly in the desert yeah. while this bizarre soundtrack is playing suffice to say edgar engages in uh relations with all three of these women at different points 
we've been talking about so many depictions of crazy women as they relate to men or within this gender dichotomy. And this is a movie where we are focused upon how crazy women relate to each other. And that was so refreshing. (laughs) It was. I mean, like, Edgar is there, and I think on one level he does link them, but it literally is, like, these scenes of, like, he's walking in the room, fucking walking out. Really, the true depth and the true screen time is focused on this subtle emotional back and forth between the women. Mm-hmm. And in the end, ultimately, I have to be so careful about the names. I just almost it's, did it backwards. Well, they also sound similar. Yes. Yeah, which is purposeful. And so Millie ultimately kills Edgar. Well, it's not clear who yeah. kills It's her. not 100% clear, but it is implied that Millie, I think, kills Edgar. I would say it doesn't imply that any specific one. Really? Yeah, because they all... In multiple points throughout the movie, Edgar remarks on how you should... He basically says, like, watch out for a crazy bitch who can shoot a gun. And there's a scene for every girl in which she... Is a crack shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea of who killed Edgar, in my opinion, is inconsequential. Because, to me, the women, by the end of the movie, become... One being. One being. And that's really clear because, by the end, they have switch names mm-hmm. and identities. And Willie has become this... I don't even know where she's ended up she seems geriatric yeah Yeah. the bell curve has shifted right i was gonna say one thing i loved about this movie is that i think it fits the bell curve of aging women really well where pinky is representing this unstable childhood millie is on the cusp of womanhood but isn't quite there yet she's still figuring out how she wants to be perceived she is not quite self-possessed yet she is coping with the fact that she's not self-possessed yet. It's painfully apparent that she hasn't reached that point yet, but mm-hmm. she is moving there. At different points, Pinky and Millie vie for this ideal of mature Woman. womanhood. And um, Pinky is well, able to usurp Millie because she is younger. She's the upgraded version. The same guys that wouldn't give Millie the time of day when Pinky now adopts the role of Millie, essentially. And is, like, wearing her bathing suit and is, like, chilling outside. Like, all the guys are fawning over her. And that, you know, rightfully pisses Millie off. Especially since at that point in time, Pinky is now starting to use Millie's name. Like, when we Mm. say these people begin to merge, they literally... It becomes so impossible to unentangle them. Yes. Even talking about the movie, I feel legitimately confused. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you just gotta watch it. You just gotta <laughs> you have watch, to watch it, guys. it. This movie, I think, is fundamental to a discussion of personhood and craziness because these women, at kind of any single point in the film, can fit into one of the diagnostic categories I created earlier. Mm-hmm. They can be any type of crazy woman. But they are at their most whole when they are supporting each other. So maybe one interpretation is that they're the ego, the super ego, and the id. But I don't think it has to be like that psychoanalytic. I think we can just say that the relationships that mentally unwell or societally crazy people have with each other are essential to survival. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much of our discussions of, you know, BPD girlies and everything is that these people are incredibly lonely. Whether or not they have the diagnosis, whether or not they technically fit it, It doesn't really matter. The fact is that they want community. And for them, this diagnosis is how they connect other people. It feels very desperate. And not in a pejorative way, not in a derogatory way, but it is truly desperate that it is through pathology that these people find community. And we've Mm. seen this done with other pathologies before, right? Like depression, ADHD, autism have all had their moment Mm. in the spotlight. So, I mean, there's, there's so much that goes on in Three Women, and I feel like it's really, really hard to do it justice. But 
I think what culminates it all is that ending where they begin to work together. Millie has taken over Willie's role as the painter and the barkeeper. Pinky is now this daughter figure. But interestingly enough, Millie calls Pinky Millie, and Millie is called Mama by Pinky. There's so many layers to the way that they have all merged by the end. And the other thing we see is that like Willie is now visibly aged. And it's clear that she's being looked after by not only the mother figure of Millie, mm-hmm. but also by the child figure of Pinky. Yeah. It's really such a unique film and such a pleasure to watch. One of the biggest things that I can say about this movie is that there's no single takeaway from it. And I really caution anybody who watches it against trying to make a point. Because that's how we should be engaging with pathology and identity. Your identity is always shifting. You might have BPD or relate to BPD, but like you are not a set of diagnostic criteria. Yeah, you're not a ton of qualities that show up over and over again in memes. And you're never really alone. Like, there's other ways to see community than by trying to embody Just thinking things. about your fortune earlier. Yeah. I went to a delicious Pan-Asian buffet earlier. Oh. Um, my fortune was actually something about, like, spreading love or whatever. But my friend... <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that, though. <laughs> I don't do that. I'm not spreading shit. Um, but this is the fortune my friend got, which has been puzzling me all day. And maybe our listeners will have some thoughts. It says... You can't possibly live long enough to live life by yourself. Bars. I don't understand what it means, but I also, it's like, I understand what it means, but I don't know how we got there. Yeah. Which is kind of beautiful. Which is just like the movie. I literally like don't really understand how we got there, but that encapsulation that Gabe did earlier, where there is a type of friendship where you are sisters and wives and 800 other relational terms to each other. It's truly like you had to be there kind of thing. I think our listeners will definitely be able to relate to that with maybe at least one woman in their life. But that's a beautiful thing. Never alone. Never alone. Yeah. There's always a woman nearby. There's a woman. And she's she's closer than you think. <laughs> it reminds me of like those ads that are like, uh, my husband just died. <laughs> what is that? I hate ads about I literally my ads are so male that I get erectile pill ads. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck they're called. Boner pills. And anime phone case ads. That's hilarious. Well, it's um, it's like the horny milfs in your area thing. Oh, yeah. I get those too. <laughs> <laughs> so there are women in your area and they only want one thing. It's to merge identities with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So we thought we would play a fun little game using some of our listener responses that we got. So the question we asked was, you know, we're doing an episode on crazy women. Share with us some of your favorite crazy women. 
And I will read some names and we will then use the taxonomy that Gabe created to categorize these women after we just said (laughs) that we are rejecting categories. It's like, well, it was Young's birthday very recently. Yeah. Happy birthday, King. We're just channeling like canon of taxonomy. Archetypes. 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 I mean. Here's the first one. Grimes. I think she is a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. (laughs) Offer instead of a manic pixie dream girl, a manic techno dream girl. Yes. Pronouns does Grimes. 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 I don't think. I think. I Grimes. 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 Let's get this right. Let's get this right. Grimes said mm, in 2015, I vibe in a gender neutral space, so I'm kind of impartial to pronouns for myself. <laughs> okay. That's some shit they would say. <laughs> well, okay, so Grimes, uh, Manic. Manic. <laughs> Me versus not pronouncing one word horribly wrong. Okay. Manic Techno Dream Day. MTDT. It kind of sounds like a drug, but... I am do it. I feel like they would be into that. Yeah. Next one is Lana Del Rey. This is kind of lowball. I feel like we know which category this is. Go on. Maybe I've made a pretty sweeping statement. No, I, I just hear I feel like here. it's so Tumblrina. Oh. Uh, I mean... Tumblrinas and Lana are definitely related to each other. I think temporally is how I'm thinking of it. Mm. The music is BPD vibes. In the same way that Amy Dunn is not necessarily BPD, but is symbolically attached to BPD, I think that Lana is symbolically attached to Tumblrinas, much to her chagrin. Like, yes. I don't uh, think in, in the mother goddess kind of way. Yeah, she is such a... She's mommy. She's and mama. we have a very contentious relationship. Okay, proposition for a new category. Mommy, mommy dearest. Mommy dearest. <laughs> no, you're so right. You're so mommy right. is definitely in category. Yep, Lana Del Rey is mommy And dearest. you know what? It says something in a Freudian manner about this episode that we didn't construct the mommy category until yeah. the end <laughs> we were just repressing we were repressing so. i don't know why i would do that that would, be I would so... never construct a mother <laughs> a, wire a wire mother, mother. <laughs> <laughs> she would be cloth yeah no mine's definitely wire mine's and cloth what's that mean where it's like i choose the wire mother every time <laughs> adversity <laughs> or like the grind says the thing is that like in the experiment that wasn't the adversity like that was the milk they just wanted the soft loving and they didn't care about eating, right? Yeah. That's Wait, so- I'm gonna cry. Stop. <laughs> I just got really sad. Oh, I'm sorry. Shall um, I move on? Uh, yeah. Do you need a minute? No, I'm okay. okay. Um, the next one is Azealia Banks. Oh. Defies categorization, in my opinion. Like, that's legend. So we were talking to a friend and listener of the pod earlier, and we were discussing the relationship between queer people and crazy women, but specifically gay men and crazy women, and how sometimes gay men will see a woman who's crazy, and there's some sort of... It activates them. She becomes deified. Mm. There's a beauty in it that I I don't even know how to express. It's just, uh, you want to see what happens. You want to mm. see this destructive force of nature. It's like seeing a, a tornado. Ooh. You're like, yeah. So What's tear the that most... Shit up. <laughs> that was <laughs> such a game. <laughs> I have news for you. But Azalea is like that. We're a force of nature. Mm. I don't know... Mother quake. Mother quake. Well, a mother quake. <laughs> I like how we just end up having to invent new categories. Yeah. yeah. We're because not really all these... <laughs> Well, all these bitches are so exceptional. Right, yeah. right. Maybe they're more like titles. How about that? 
like that. Like, what is it? A superlative in a yearbook? Yeah, yeah. We're knighting them. Um, Marianne Williamson. I think she's um an angel in the house. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's an angel in the because house. Because she's really... I mean, she's transcendent. What is that tweet where she's like, love makes you leap across the field of time? <laughs> she's okay. Um, quick anecdote about Marianne Williamson. During 2020... I was playing a lot of words with friends and I had Marianne Williamson <laughs> as my profile pic and the amount of men in my words with friend DMs, it was astronomical. They I had, want her. They want her. I had this one guy message me and he was like, your smile could light up a room. And I was like, yeah. It could. It, and it lights up my room. So. Uh, yeah, it does. It could have lit up the White House if this country I, wasn't so fucking afraid. <laughs> this might be a Molly fact, but I'm pretty sure that Laura Dern and Marianne Williamson were roommates at some point. Oh, I'm believing it. I'm choosing to believe that right now. I just got really emotional. I know, literally. <laughs> Do, should we take a minute? I love Warder so much. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, okay, so... We got more? The friend of the pod had also mentioned Tyra Banks. Tyra Banks is actually what inspired the episode for me. Yeah. Because I wanted to defend her. Growing up, I watched a lot of America's Next Top Model with my mom. And we really bonded over the... Oh, I have Ins- to do the monologue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, yeah. Hold up. Just <laughs> like the degree of insanity that Tyra Banks represents. She's so important to me. I don't know how I would categorize her. I guess I'm starting to realize that the presence of fame really transforms these categories. Well, these have all been real people, right? Yes, so far. They're yeah. all They're all fake, and you're imagining all of them. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and it was all a dream. <laughs> um, I just have to shout out the iconic Tyra Banks monologue. Be quiet, Tiffany. Be quiet. What is wrong with you? Stop it. I have never in my life yelled at a girl like this. When my mother yells like this, it's because she loves me. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you learn something from this? When you go to bed at night, you lay there and you take responsibility for yourself because nobody's going to take responsibility for you. You rolling your eyes, it's because you've heard it all before. You don't know where the hell I come from. You have no idea what I've been through, but I'm not a victim. I grow from it and I learn. Take responsibility for yourself. Okay, Livia Soprano. Oh my God. <laughs> um, when my mother yells at me like this, yeah. it's because she, she loves, loves me. me. I think That's amazing. Instant mommy dearest. The reason I associate Tyra Banks with this type of BPD girly is because the reality show setup encourages you to behave in histrionic ways. Yeah. Like, I think of just the absolute misery she would put girls through when she would chop off all their fucking hair. Yeah. And also, Tyra Banks is obsessed with Mommy Dearest, which is a very important BPD mother-daughter movie. So... Oh, her beautiful... I can't even begin to categorize these queens, like... Uh, do you guys want to try to do Yoko Ono? Because that was a popular one. She was. Really? Yoko Ono and Bjork actually are... Yoko Ono was reviled. She was thought of as high tier of crazy bitch. Yeah, what? what, Because she did performance art? Because she, quote-unquote, broke Broke up the Beatles. With her insanity. Yeah, I mean... I just always think what, about that picture I mean, of what, her ass crack. What crazy what? things did she do, though, is the thing. It's like, that might just be a case of straight-up, like, misogyny. You guys don't know the John Lennon-Yoko Ono butt crack pic? I hate when I say things and I sound insane, but like... Oh, look. the one that's been edited a thousand times. No, it's hit. real! This one is edited. It's this real! Is edited. His ass crack is not that long, I swear to fucking God. How do you know? Because I... <laughs> you don't know that! Time. 
I do. I also asked before we started this episode if the picture of Bjork throwing ass that's black and white is real. I can't find that image. Somebody, if, find it. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, please DM it to us because I'm going crazy. <laughs> I love Bjork. She's not crazy. Maybe, okay, maybe she is. take a look at this one really well-written criticism of Three Women by Molly Langill, where she's looking at the film and she's actually looking at the history of nervous illness. Illness is in quotes here and I think that's really important because there are illnesses that are constructed across time that are just designed to pathologize women. And we've talked about this a little bit with hysteria, we've talked about this a little bit with BPD itself being this kind of umbrella that's just trying to house these different categories that don't really fit within the classic gender dynamics of psychoanalytic psychology, which even though we've made many strides in the way psychology looks at symptoms now, that really is the basis of a lot of this stuff. I mean, the DSM is originally constructed from a lot of those. So what she's talking about is this idea of neurasthenia, a neurasthenia was conceived as a more attractive form of neurosis and was most often diagnosed in upper-class women. The symptoms associated with this were blushing, vertigo, headaches, neuralgia, insomnia, depression, and uterine irritability. And it's also important to note that this is diagnosed specifically in white women because they had more demanding anxieties of romance to Yet this mental ailment was literally upheld and actually seen as associated with intellectuals and professionals to the point where doctors, such as Dr. Margaret Cleave, was a self-proclaimed neurasthene and is attributing these to things like being overworked and also the fact that she thinks that girls and women are unfit to bear the continued labor of mind because of the disqualifications existing in their physiological life. Neurasthenia and hysteria and all these things are more easy to deem a woman than to acknowledge intellectual frustration, lack of ability, needs for autonomy and control, and I thought that was such a good point that Molly Lingle was bringing up and it ties back to our broader discussion because a diagnosis is ultimately a tool that can help people seek help and improve their sense of dissatisfaction with their own lives. Part of the criteria for any diagnosis is that the patient themselves has to be experiencing distress about their symptoms. If they're not worried about it, it actually cannot be diagnosed under the DSM criteria. And so looking at this, I was reading this criticism and being like, I can't imagine a doctor sitting down and being like, yeah, I'm a neurasthene and I think that my uterine irritability and depression is a result of the natural conditions of like the feminine mind. Because we know contemporarily there were also women that were pushing back against this and being like, that's absurd. There's no way hysteria and whatnot is real. Earlier when I was like, here are these two German men who talked about BPD and then dot 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 and we get here today. There's actually a woman named Marsha Linehan who suffered from BPD and went through a lot of those really obsolete and terrible procedures such as electroshock therapy yeah. in her treatment. And she actually eventually went on to create DBT, yeah. dialectical behavioral therapy, as a way to treat BPD. I'm glad you brought it up because DBT is very much a cornerstone. Wow. I can't believe I didn't know that. Catholic queen. Um, and she... <clears throat> 
got the basis of dialectical behavioral therapy after a, a religious experience. Wow. Like a transformative I mean, that explains, vision. that explains the structure of it. It's very similar to like 12 step programs and stuff too. Yeah. Um, which are often like religiously rooted. I mean, that just goes to show my initial qualm with this. My initial goal was trying to understand why would someone want to step into this identity? Mm -hmm. What power does that really grant? Can you really say that this is refanging women when you're stepping into a role that actually is more socially reviled? If women already have a lower social role in society, then crazy women are innately lower than that. You're going from angel to monster, and why would you want to do that? Seeing that this is something that people of the time were willing to uphold just goes to show, like we talked about a little bit, Sometimes it's what the identity can do for you and your conception of gender, for example, or your conception of your reality. And the memes and the tweets and ultimately like some of the fetishization that comes out of it, that's a natural consequence of this stuff spreading and a community being generated and people making the space for themselves. But I think I now really understand and sympathize with that compulsion and the popularity of this messaging, even if a lot of it does concern me. A lot of the women who are attaching themselves to this label are white. The historical culture of white women is craziness. And so by adopting or inhabiting a crazier than normal persona, that is how you access your lineage. I mean, it makes me think of... I'm saying this not in necessarily a complimentary way, but it makes me think of we were the daughters of the witches who couldn't burn. Yeah, yeah. which my favorite follow-up to that quote is, no ma'am, you were the daughters of the Confederacy. Literally. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think it's a pretty misguided way of trying to get in touch with a historical gender Yeah, yeah. for a lot of these women. But and I so think if, if that's the goal, if the goal is to feel more feminine, it makes sense to be enjoying and even maybe ironically trying to replicate those things of oh i need to be taken to the seaside for my health like i'm just such a delicate little maiden it's worthy of criticism absolutely it's controversial and, and that's what it's trying to be yeah so like i congratulate them it's <laughs> I, I mean i have a hard time when i see things where it's like here's a quote from a tiktok i saw which like here here i am getting mad about a tiktok but it says i find it kind of ironic when the girlies say i would have been lobotomized back then Babe, your BPD diagnosis and the cocktail of SSRIs and neuroleptics you're taking are doing the same. That is not a lobotomy. A lobotomy is a, is a fundamentally <laughs> different. It, yeah. a, a procedure that removes part of your, your brain, brain is a lot different than a, a chemical cocktail. They're being provocateurs, and I, yeah. in turn, have been provoked. So I can't really be mad at them for that. I mean, I think there is this ironic, I wish I was a housewife, zonked out on Ativan. It's and... some yellow wallpaper head ass. Yes, yellow yeah. wallpaper shit. But where does the yellow wallpaper come from? I actually taught this to my students recently. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was reflecting on the rest cure for postpartum depression at that time. And how she was like, this is so fucked. Let me get up, walk around, get some exercise. It'll make me feel better. But no one was listening to her. After the publication of the story, she was able to get the doctor that was the big proponent of this to kind of acknowledge the error of his ways and apologize. You're raising a really, really interesting point about the extent to which these medical treatments were kind of a form of societal control and violence against women. And it's very intriguing to think me going to pick up some Depakote is the same as probably some lady's husband forcing her to go get a lobotomy because she was depressed because she was forced to be a housewife and not have a life of her own. It's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. 
they're accomplishing their goal when they provoke me specifically because I'm not fetishizing this girl with BPD. I mean, you know, I'm gay, so it's different. (laughs) He really doesn't care. I'm a bisexual gay man. It's very complicated. This is also a very small subset of the BPD community, right? Like, There's also other people that are like, why are y'all so obsessed with this identity? I hate living with my condition. Or diagnosis is such a stigma. Yes, Mm. yeah. No one treats me like a human being aspect of the community, and I think that can be beautiful and constructive in the same way that like when we say seek out community with other people that can be positive that can also be really codependent and negative ultimately i have so much love and empathy for people in kind of every pocket of this experience because i think it's coming from a very lonely place yeah so Hug a crazy bitch today. For yeah. real. And I I dedicate this episode to the brave borderline personality <laughs> disorder fighters. My favorite BPD girl is the one listening. Oh. <laughs> and these gals. Oh, <laughs> Wait, actually, the, the correct response would have been to be like, you like other. <laughs> <laughs> well, gazers, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope to do more episodes in the future. And we always want to hear from you. Again, you can reach out to us at thenavelgazepod at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thenavelgaze. Thank you. Bye. Bye.